أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يحدي الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا حادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته In the name of God, the most kind, the most gracious, I declare there is no God but Allah and that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is his final messenger. Um, welcome back to the second workshop. Uh, Alhamdulillah. Again, we have our um, visiting scholar from America, Jamal Zarabozo, who will, inshallah, continue with this workshop. Today's subject, as uh, we all know, we've got the program as well, is the principles of hadith. Uh, inshallah that will be as usual for one hour, then straight on after that again you have the bookshop upstairs and plus refreshments for the sisters and brothers, uh, that will be for a half an hour rest. Then after that session two inshallah will be the rules of fiqh. Is that sort of oh, I have no idea. <laughs> rules of fiqh, that's what it says here anyway at least. We'll, we'll have to discuss that. Okay, and that again is for one hour and straight on after that we'll have question answer session again. Uh, again, floor is open for any questions written or from the floor inshallah. Then afterwards we have a book sale for the brothers again upstairs and uh, inshallah we'll finish with Salat al-Zuhar at uh, quarter to two. That's for now inshallah we've got our first session with the uh, principles of hadith and inshallah we'll give Sheikh Jamal Zarabu. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Inna alhamdulillahi wa salatu wa salam ala Sayyidina Muhammad وَشَرُوَنَ لَا إِلَهِ لَلَّهُ وَحْدُهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ وَشَرُوَنَ مُحَمَّدٍ عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَمَّا بَعْدَ I have been given about one hour's time to give you all of the principles of hadith. Obviously that's not uh, very feasible. So once again, inshallah, we just have to pick some uh, topics of importance and try to understand these uh, concepts, inshallah, given the time that, that we have. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in the Qur'an after mentioning that the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed the dhikr Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says وَإِنَّ لَهُ لَحَافِذُونَ that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed the dhikr and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shall preserve the dhikr well, there's some difference of opinion about what is meant by the word dhikr in this, uh, in this verse of the Qur'an however one conclusion that, uh, or a conclusion that one gets from the different interpretations of this verse is that this verse is inclusive of all of the revelation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It is inclusive of the Quran and it is also inclusive of the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam himself stated that he was given the Quran and something similar to it. And he was given the Quran as a form of revelation and also the sunnah as a whole was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and forms part of that revelation which Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has also preserved. Now Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala preserved the Quran and preserved the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And most people, or you hear this quite often that people say that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala preserved the Quran but Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala did not uh, preserve the sunnah or they, they look at how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved the Qur'an 
And they almost say, and I've actually heard people say this, that Allah preserved the Qur'an, but man preserved the hadith. <laughs> and so therefore some hadith are not authentic and so forth. The fact of the matter, as I said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved both the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu And in both aspects, both the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu were preserved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the medium of mankind. In other words, in other words, if you look at the Qur'an and how the Qur'an was preserved, it was by the actions of the Sahaba that it was preserved. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided them to those deeds and they preserved the Qur'an, the revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They gathered it together and so forth. We all know the history of the, of the Qur'an. In the same way, or I should say similarly, the Sahaba preserved the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Perhaps in manners that were different from the way the Qur'an was preserved, but obviously the nature of the sunnah or the hadith is different from the nature of the Qur'an. The Qur'an is one concise book, the exact wording from the beginning to the end is known. So therefore the process was different. But both the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ were preserved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this ummah. They both form the teachings of the last prophet, the last messenger that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to mankind, and they will be preserved, they will both, the sunnah and the Quran will be preserved until the day of judgment. Now the means, as we said, the means by which the sunnah of the Prophet was preserved is somewhat different from the, the means by which the Quran was preserved, again due to its different nature. But we find, for example, the uh, <coughs> the recording of hadith of the Prophet ﷺ and writing down the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. This action of recording and writing down hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, this actually began during the time of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ himself. And Abdullah bin Amr al-As, for example, one of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ used to record everything that the Prophet ﷺ said. And some of his uh, brethren, some of his brothers said to him, and he, did, he, should not, he, should, he should not do that. Because the Prophet Muhammad is still a human being, and sometimes he might get upset or be angered by someone, and maybe he doesn't want what he's saying to be recorded. So Abdullah bin Amr al-As went to the Prophet Muhammad and he told the Prophet what he's doing, and <coughs> he told the Prophet what was the comments that they had told to him, and the Prophet ﷺ told him to record, for nothing leaves his mouth except the truth. And even if he's angered, even if he's angered by the people, he does not say anything that goes beyond the truth. So therefore everything that he says is true, and everything can be recorded. So he gave Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As to record, the permission to record whatever he wished of the Prophet Muhammad's hadith. The rule of the hadith, the rule of the sunnah was understood from the time of the Prophet Muhammad and the time of the Sahaba, they used to study hadith, learn hadith, uh, they used to take time, to take turns being with the Prophet Muhammad and learn his hadith. Of course, obviously, many of them had their own businesses or their own lives to take care of, so they could not spend all of their time with the Prophet Muhammad But even then, and they would make the efforts to learn what the Prophet had said and done on that day. The classic example that many people are familiar with is the case of Umar al-Khattab. But one day he would go to the Prophet ﷺ and sit with the, the Prophet ﷺ and his neighbor would take care of his personal, uh, his neighbor would take care of his own personal affairs. 
And then in the evening they would meet together and Umar al-Khattab would tell his neighbor what the Prophet ﷺ said and did on that day. And then the next day his neighbor would go to the Prophet ﷺ and sit with the Prophet ﷺ while Umar al-Khattab took care of his personal affairs. And then in the evening they would sit together and he would tell him what the Prophet ﷺ said and did on that day. And this um, adherence to the sunnah and this learning of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, as I said, this continued. Uh, and it started from the time of the Prophet Muhammad and continued after the time of the Prophet Muhammad They realized, the Sahaba realized the importance of the Sunnah and they realized the importance of the Hadith of the Prophet and passing on that Hadith and passing on that Hadith in a proper fashion to the later generations. We find, for example, the case of uh, Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira, as we know, uh, he is the narrator of the Sahabi who passed on more hadith than any other of the Sahaba of the Prophet Muhammad And in fact, the Prophet made dua for him and he said that if anyone uh, folds his cloak out, he will not forget any hadith of his after the day. And, and Abu Huraira fulfilled what that dua, what the Prophet had asked for him to fulfill to make that dua happen for him. But even him, he would take the steps to memorize hadith and study hadith. Abu Huraira used to divide his night into three portions. One third was for sleep, one third was for prayer, and one third was for memorizing and going over hadith of the Prophet Muhammad And as we said, he used to pass on hadith of the Prophet and narrate hadith of the Prophet more than the other Sahaba. And even this fact was known to the Sahaba at that time. And Umar Khattab brought Abu Huraira in and asked, he wanted to ask Abu Huraira to make sure that when he's narrating hadith of Prophet ﷺ, he is narrating in the proper fashion and he is not making mistakes or adding anything to, the, to what the Prophet ﷺ had said. So he called Abu Huraira in and he asked him, do you remember such and such night and do you remember what the Prophet ﷺ told us on that night? And Abu Huraira said, yes, I remember what the Prophet ﷺ told us on that night. Abu Huraira said, the Prophet ﷺ told us, من, من That whoever intentionally, falsely attributes something to me, he shall take his seat in the hellfire. So then Umar al-Khattab told him, you may go and continue narrating hadith. I just wanted to make sure that you remember this aspect when it comes to the narration of the hadith. Umar al-Khattab, Abu Bakr, Umar al-Khattab, from the earliest times, they were concerned with making sure that people were narrating hadith in the proper fashion and were not making any mistakes in the narration of hadith. In fact, many of the Sahaba, when they used to narrate hadith, they used to perspire out of fear that they would be saying something wrong on the authority of the Prophet ﷺ. In fact, many of them used to do their best to avoid narrating hadith so that they would avoid the possibility of making mistakes and narrating something to uh, something from the Prophet ﷺ. And in fact, there's some narrations of that hadith that I mentioned, man kadaba ali muta'ammadan, that do not mention the portion that says muta'ammadan. There's also authentic narrations of that hadith that says, man kadaba aliyya falyatabawa maqadu min al-nar. Because the word kadaba, and this means to state anything which goes against the truth, whether you state it intentionally or unintentionally. And to state anything which is incorrect, whether that is done intentionally or unintentionally in the language of Al-Hijaz and in the usage of the Hijaz and to state anything incorrect falls under the word Kadabah.
So they were very careful and about making any mistake in the narration of the Prophet Muhammad And as I said, even the, the government or the rulers at that time, such as Abu Bakr and uh, Umar and Uthman, they were also very careful about this matter. In fact, one time, uh, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, the, uh, the Sahabi, the companion of the Prophet Muhammad he came to Umar's house to see Umar, and he asked for permission three times to enter. And he did not receive any response from Umar Khattab. So then he turned and started to go away. So then Umar Khattab came out and he saw him leaving. So he asked him, you know, why are you leaving? And Abu Musa told him that the Prophet ﷺ had told us that if you ask for permission to enter three times and it is not granted to you, then you should turn back, you should return. So this hadith was new to Umar Khattab. As we said, not uh, none of the Sahaba were able to spend all of their time with the Prophet Muhammad So he was not familiar with this hadith of the Prophet So he told Abu Musa that if you do not bring a witness for what you have said, I will have you punished. And you know when Umar Khattab threatens to punish someone, it's a, yeah, it is a real uh, uh, threat. So Abu Musa went and he, in fear and he went to a group of the Ansar who were sitting someplace close by and they told him what happened. Uh, he told them what happened. And from the way the, uh, the narration is given, it's like they, you know, they kind of chuckled about the matter and they sent the youngest one among them to go with him to Umar Khattab because it was a hadith that was well known to the other people. So they sent someone with Abu Musa to go to uh, Umar Khattab and say, that uh, yes, the Prophet ﷺ had said such. So then Umar Khattab told Abu Musa, he said, I had no doubt about you. And he did not doubt that what he's saying is incorrect or anything of that nature. He said, I did not have any doubt or suspicion about you, but I wanted to make sure that the people are careful in narrating hadith from Muhammad So this idea, this concept of being very careful in the narration of the hadith of the Prophet as we said, it started, uh, we can even take examples from the time of Abu Bakr and Umar and so forth, and the Sahaba themselves knew the importance of being careful in narrating hadith and checking each other's hadith and making sure that people are narrating hadith properly. And all of this uh, developed into what are known as the sciences of hadith and the different branches of this field. This is a kind of a wide field. A wide field. It uh, encompasses many different aspects. And as I said, and for this short of a time, there's not many of the aspects that we can get into. So, after that kind of introductory uh, discussion, I want to discuss basically just one aspect related to the principles of, of hadith, of the sciences of hadith. And this is what we mean when we say that the hadith is sahih, that the hadith is authentic. In other words, what is it that led the scholars to conclude that this hadith is authentic and we must accept it, and we must act on it, and we must live by it. <clears throat> Basically, the scholars have derived five conditions. That if a hadith meets these five conditions, it will be considered an authentic hadith. And these conditions 
يعني they I mean they developed over time or they were formulated in a scientific way over time like any other science يعني the science exists before the classification and the formalization or the discussion of the science but these principles they are based on evidences from the Quran evidences from the hadith of the Prophet and the practices of the Sahaba and also uh, what you could call I guess established logic so if you have a hadith of the Prophet suppose you're living for example in the second or third century of Islam like most of the major scholars of hadith lived to study this hadith and to say whether or not this hadith is authentic as I said you must study it and see if it meets five basic conditions the first condition is that you must be able to trace that hadith all the way back from you, all the way from you back to the Prophet Muhammad And the chain of narrators, which is known as the Isnad, the chain of authorities, uh, must be unbroken. And the Isnad must be muqtasar. Meaning there is no one missing, this is long before Darwin ever came along, there can be no missing link in the chain. <laughs> And everyone, you must be able to identify everyone who has narrated this hadith back to the time from Muhammad And when we see the other conditions, we will understand why this is an essential uh, condition. If you study, for example, the the books of the uh, Christians and the Jews, you'll see that they cannot narrate what they have all the way back to, for example, Jesus. Even the four Gospels, the, what are known as the four Gospels, the well-known four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of those authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were companions of the Prophet Isa, salam. None of them. None of them were eyewitnesses to what Isa, salam did. And so therefore we have no idea, no way of knowing how they got their information about the life of Jesus. Who did they get it from? How can they trace it from themselves back to Jesus? But in the case of Hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu as I said, every narration we have to be able to know who uh, gave it to us and how did we give it, how do we get it all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And with respect to all of those narrators in the chain, the second condition is that every one of those narrators must be what is known as Adil, or they must be people of righteousness and integrity. They must be people who, from at least what we can see about them, you know, they perform their obligatory prayers, they stay away, I mean, they perform their obligatory acts, they stay away from the forbidden acts. They don't have anything in their character which would make us believe that perhaps they might lie, perhaps they are not careful in their narration of hadith. They have taqwa, they have fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They would prevent them from being careless in the narration of hadith. And obviously, every narrator, every narrator in the chain must be of this quality, must be adil. And 90% of the narrators is not sufficient, 80%, 75%. Every narrator in the chain must be adil. And a third condition for an authentic hadith is that every narrator in the chain also must be bothered. He must be proficient. And he, for example, when he narrates from his memory, he is known to have a good memory. 
when he narrates from his books, he's known to have good writing and he writes down the hadith properly. Because it is not sufficient for someone to be pious, and this is not sufficient, just he is pious that we will accept his hadith. Because he could be very pious, but he is just not a person of knowledge, or is not a person in that field that when he hears something, he can transmit it in the same way that he heard it. So someone could be very pious, but he's not reliable in his narrations. In fact, Imam Malik once said that he finds more lies, or as in, as we talked about, yani from the language of Hajjaj, any more false things coming from those people who are the most pious. Because many people at that time, they would dedicate themselves to worship and concentrate on worship, and they would not dedicate themselves to study and the proper study of hadith and preserving hadith and so forth. So they are very religious and pious people, but their hadith are not accepted. And the, and, and the scholars of hadith, they used to test each other, or they used to, as in the case of Amr al-Khattab that we mentioned earlier, they used to study each other and make sure that people were narrating hadith in the proper fashion, that they were proficient, that they were not making mistakes in their narrations of hadith. We can even find an example in the case of Aisha, the wife of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu She one time, she once told her nephew Arwa that Abdullah bin Amr al-As was coming to make Hajj that year, so go to him and ask him some of the hadith that he heard from the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So Arwa went to uh, Abdullah during the Hajj and asked him for a hadith that he heard from the Prophet Sallallahu And one of the hadith that he narrated to Arwa was the hadith that, that um, the Prophet ﷺ stated that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not take the ilm from the people by snatching it from their hearts, but instead he allows the ulama to die and they are not replaced with any new ulama. So this hadith that Urwa narrated to Aisha from Abdullah ibn Amr al-As, again this hadith was something that Aisha was not familiar with. So two years later, Abdullah bin Amr al-As was coming to make Hajj again. And that was a common practice. One year they would make uh, go out for jihad, the next year they would make Hajj. So he's coming for Hajj again, so Aisha tells Arwa to go to Abdullah bin Amr al-As and to ask him about the hadith of the Prophet and to ask him about those hadith of the Prophet Muhammad so he went to that him and came back to Aisha and he narrated the hadith in exactly the same way that he narrated in the first time. So Aisha said, now I am certain that he had memorized it exactly and he's narrating exactly as he heard it from the Prophet Muhammad So this was a hadith that she was not certain of and she wanted to make sure that he's narrating it in the same way every time that this is really something that he heard directly and memorized directly from the Prophet Muhammad And in fact, the, the students of hadith used to test each other one of the ways of, um, there was two basic ways of, of studying hadith. One of the ways was for the sheikh to have either his book in front of him or from his memory. He would be narrating hadith to the people. And they would be, they would have one person who would be in charge of recording the hadith and the others would listen, uh, closely. Because if you record, Sometimes you do not grasp everything when you record. So they have one person in charge of recording, 
and the others listen uh, intently to what the Sheikh is saying. And then later, they will take that copy that the person recorded, and they will make their own personal copies from that copy. And they even had a system of where they would, uh, like, take roll. They would mark down everyone who was present at that occasion, and they would mark down the dates and so forth, and the hadith that the Sheikh read on that day. And in fact, sometimes you will find in some of the early manuscripts after a hadith, you'll find a circle after the hadith, a big circle, and then you'll see lines drawn through that, that circle. This represents what they would do is at the end of the hadith, they would put that circle, and then every time they read that hadith back to the sheikh to confirm its wording, they would put another line through the, uh, through the hadith, uh, through the circle, I mean. So sometimes you'll find that they read the same hadith back to the sheikh on many occasions to confirm its wording. And the second way of, of uh, passing on hadith, the second common way of passing on hadith was for the sheikh to give his book to the student or for the student to bring his own book of the sheikh's hadith and the, and the student would read the hadith back to the sheikh. And the sheikh would approve of the hadith as, as he read it. So sometimes what they would do in order to test the proficiency and to test really whether or not the person recognizes his own hadith, is when they're reading hadith back to the uh, the sheikh, sometimes they would include hadith, or they would include portions of the hadith that were not part of his narration. So if the sheikh just sat there quietly and just said, yes, that's my hadith, that's, that sounds good, that's fine. <laughs> they would know that he is not a proficient or he is not a precise narrator of hadith. And if he's not noticing the differences that the student is putting into his hadith, then he is not a proficient or sound narrator of hadith. Sometimes they would study hadith yani to, to great detail to try to spot and detect any of the mistakes that might occur in the hadith. For example, Shaba one time went uh, to one of the students of Hamad. And he said, I have this, the, the, um, uh, the hadith of Hamad, I would like to read this hadith to you. So that student, he said, and I have no problem, but he asked him, have you read this hadith to any other of Hamad's students? And Shu'abah told him, yes I have, I read it to 17 of his students. So he asked him, you know, you read it to 17 of his students, why are you want to read it now to an 18th of his students? And his answer was, and Hamad was known to make some mistakes in, in hadith, some mistakes in his narrations. So he said, I want to be able to distinguish between the mistakes of Hamad and the mistakes of his students. And in other words, if there's a hadith that is, is uh, narrated by Hamad, and he knows from the other scholars that there's a mistake in that narration from Hamad, if all of the students, if all of these 18 students narrated in the same way from Hamad, he knows that that mistake is from Hamad. But if there is a mistake from the students of Hamad, 16 of them all narrated in the same way, the correct way from Hamad, but two of them narrated incorrectly from Hamad, he knows that that mistake comes from those two students and not from Hamad. So he's judging, and the hadith of Hamad is trying to spot the mistakes that he made. At the same time also he's spotting who among Hamad's students are, are the best, who among them are making mistakes in their narration, and who is not. And this kind of process, as I said, and it continued, or it was on a, on a, a massive scale, 
And the purpose of that, again, was to identify those narrators who are proficient, those narrators who are bhavat, those narrators whose narrations can be trusted. And that is, again, the third condition for hadith to be sahih, that all of the narrators in the chain must be bhavat. All of the narrators in the chain must be proficient. Again, not just yani 90% of them or anything like that, but all of them must be proficient. And then the fourth condition is that there cannot be any uh, what is known as shudud in the narration. And basically what is meant by shudud is where and the scholars recognize the fact that even trustworthy narrators can make mistakes sometimes. Even the best narrator, like for example if you're in a class, uh, engineering or economics or whatever, even the best student in that class can make a mistake. And they were well aware of that fact. So one of the uh, conditions that they put on, on the hadith is that there can be no shad or shurud in the hadith, meaning this hadith coming from trustworthy narrators cannot contradict anything which comes from stronger authorities. For example, as we mentioned before, many times they knew the uh, different settings of uh, hadith discussions and who were whose students and what time they were his students and where they met with him and so forth. So suppose, for example, among Imam Malik students, you have, or like in the case of Hamad that I mentioned earlier, but let's say among Imam Malik students, if you have a case where there's narrations from uh, Imam Malik, of a, of a, or let's say Imam Malik himself, there's a hadith coming from Imam Malik. And Imam Malik is, there's no question about his uh, soundness and his uh, proficiency and his uh, acceptability as a narrator of hadith. But he is one of a class of scholars at that level. Suppose he narrates a hadith and he narrates it in a way that contradicts the way that other scholars of the same time and the same place and the same level of authenticity narrate it in a slightly different